Welcome back to the Theopolis Podcast. I'm your host, Brian Motes, and I'm the content manager at Theopolis Institute. We at Theopolis train men and women to lead cultural renewal by renewing the church. Participants in our programs learn to read the Bible imaginatively, worship God faithfully, and engage the culture intelligently. In this episode, we're continuing our series on the life of Jacob with James Jordan. And here, Jordan's going to be in Genesis chapter 38, verses 20 through 30, looking at the second half of the story of Judah and Tamar. Do be sure to sign up for our newsletter in Medias Race. This is a weekly newsletter where you will receive a digest of all things Theopolis and a note from Peter Lightheart. And if you sign up with the link in the show notes, we will send you a free ebook on Pando Communion. We want to thank you so much for listening. We hope that you enjoy this episode. And here is James Jordan discussing Genesis chapter 38 and the story of Judah and Tamar. Genesis chapter 38. I'm going to read this again and we'll finish it up. It came to pass at about that time that Yehuda, Judah, went down. Last time we looked at the going down in parallel to Joseph's going down to Egypt. Went down away from his brothers and turned aside to an Adulamite man. His name was Hira. The language here as we hear it in this more literal translation brings out a hint. He leaves and turns aside. This is language that was used for sin, turning aside. So just the language itself, instead of saying about that time he went and visited or lived with, he goes away from his brothers, he leaves the community, he departs from the covenant community, he turns aside to an Adulamite, whose name is Hira, and there Yehuda saw the daughter of a Canaanite man, and his name was Shua. Remember that the patriarchal forebears had always said, do not marry with the Canaanites. Abraham had been concerned about this. Isaac had been concerned about this. Don't marry Canaanite women. Well, now we're going to do it. His name was Shua, and he, Judah, took her and came into her. The girl is not named, and we commented last time that we have this sons of God, daughters of man theme here. She's just a daughter. She's unnamed. Verse 3 says she became pregnant and bore a son, and he called his name Ur. She became pregnant again and bore a son, and he called his name Onan, and once again she bore a son, and she called his name Shalah. And now he was in Kaziv when she bore him. So we're moving around. Time is flowing on these places. Names don't seem to have any particular significance. Then we come to the second paragraph, which is the death of Tamar's husbands. Yehuda took a wife for Ur, his firstborn. Her name was Tamar, or we say in English, Tamar. But Ur, Yehuda's firstborn, did ill in the eyes of Yahweh, and Yahweh caused him to die. I pointed out to you last time that the name Ur and the word evil are just reverse of one another. If you write them in Hebrew, the name Ur is written this way, and the word Ra is written this way. They're just reverse of each other. Ur, Ra. So, that's something interesting. There's almost a pun on his name. Verse 8. Now, we don't know what he did. And I parallel that to the sin of Adam in the garden because the next sin is the sin of Cain and Abel and then the next sin is going to be intermarriage with the daughters of men. Verse 8. 
again. It will be again intermarriage with the daughters of men. Yehuda said to Onan, verse 8, Come into your brother's wife and do a lever's duty by her. A lever is a brother or a near relative who takes a widow and has a son. The first son that she is birth to will be the heir of the dead man's estate. And it's a true marriage. It's a permanent marriage. It's not a one-night stand. And so Onan is now given to Tamar. Come into your brother's wife, do a lever's duty by him to preserve seed for your brother. But Onan knew that the seed would not be his. And so it came to pass whenever, in Hebrew it's quite clear, this isn't just a one-time event. Whenever he came to his brother's wife, he let it go to ruin on the ground so as not to provide seed for his brother. And that's his only sin. Everything here is about brother-brother relationships. It has nothing to do with birth control. There is not anything in this passage that pertains to that question or to any other question that is often associated with Onan. What he did was evil in the eyes of Yahweh, and he caused him to die as well. So now Tamar's husbands are killed. Now, verses 11 to 14, the third section we've looked at, Tamar arrives to seduce Judah. And I've given you this little chiastic structure. We looked at that last time. Verse 11. Now Yehuda said to Tamar, his daughter-in-law, Remain as a widow, sit as a widow in your father's house until Shalom, my son, has grown up. For he said to himself, otherwise he will die as well like his brothers. No indication here, recognition that it was Yahweh who killed these sons for their sin. Rather, Judah seems to believe that because they were married to Tamar, they died. Maybe she's got some mysterious demon connected with her that kills her husbands. She's jinxed. So Tamar went and stayed in her father's house, and many days passed. Notice that she is back under her father's household. This becomes a problem for us later on when Judah seems to be in charge of her and decides to put her to death. We'll have to ask a question about that when we get to it. Many days passed, and Shua's daughter, Yehuda's wife, died. So it's not just days that have passed, it's quite some time. And Sheila has grown up, and he hasn't been given to Tamar. He's probably married to someone else. Eventually he marries, because we know he has descendants. And it says, when Yehuda had been comforted, he went up to his sheep shearers, he and his friend Hira the Adulamite to Timnah. And Tamar was told, saying, Behold, your father-in-law is going to Timnah to shear his sheep. And she removed her widow's garments from her and covered herself with a veil and wrapped herself, and we saw that probably means perfumed herself, and sat down by the entrance to Anayim, two wells, which is on the way to Timnah. For she saw Shelah had grown up, and yet she had not been given to him as a wife. And that's about where we were. Several things. She changes her garments. That is... What Jacob does in the preceding narrative, garments continue to be noted in this passage. Again, we wouldn't have to be told all this, and there is this emphasis on it. She takes her widow's garments off, and she covers herself a different way, and then at the end, she takes off her veil and puts on her widow's garments. Garments were obviously a major theme in the preceding story. They're going to be a major theme again in the next story, where... We have another deceptive woman, only an evil one, and she tears Joseph's garment off of him. So that's something to notice throughout here as a theme. What are you covered with? How do you present yourself in the world? What is your station and standing? All of these things clothing has to do with. And she changes her station 
by doing this, just as Jacob had changed his station when he tore his garments and put on sackcloth and ashes. And he went from happiness to mourning. She goes from mourning to something else, and then back to mourning. One other thing that we pointed out last time, and this is a continuing parallel in the story, Joseph's brothers went off with their sheep to pasture their sheep. And then Joseph went to meet them, and they attacked him, and then they took the evidence back to their father. Not exactly the same story here, but enough to where we're reminded. Judah goes to shear sheep. Tamar goes to find him. She is made use of. Then she has tokens that are brought and presented to Judah to examine. They cause him to react. And we'll get to that when we see it. What is going to come up here is there's an eye for eye aspect to this. What's being done to Judah is similar to what he did to his father. He's tricked his father, and now he's going to be tricked in turn in a redemptive way. The center of the passage is verses 15 to 19. And this is about where we were last time. And I pointed out to you that these verses have a chiastic structure. They go into the question of the pledge. The pledge becomes the important issue here. She starts off as a harlot and winds up being back as a widow. So we'll read that. When Judah saw her, he took her for a harlot, for she covered her face. And he turned aside to her by the road and said, Come now, pray let me come into you, for he did not know she was his daughter-in-law. And she said, What will you give me for coming in to me? And he said, I myself will send out a goat kid from the flock. And she said, Only if you give me a pledge until you send it. And he said, What is the pledge that I am to give you? And she said, Your seal, your cord, and your staff, or pen that is in your hand, or on your hand. And he gave them to her, and then he came into her, and she became pregnant by him. And she arose and went away, and she put off her veil from her, and clothed herself in her widow's garments. Verse 15, she had covered her face. There are a number of things that are commonly said about this whole passage that scholars now question because there's no evidence for them. One thing you hear is that prostitutes covered their faces in the ancient Near East. Well, apparently there's no evidence for this whatsoever at all. In fact, as we'll see, there's apparently no evidence of such a thing as sacred prostitution in the ancient Near East, which raises a question as to what is a question later on in this passage. But for a long time, it was said that, well, this is what prostitutes did. Apparently, that is not to be taken the way he's got it translated here. He took her for a harlot, and she had covered her face. Is apparently a better way to render it. She covered her face so he wouldn't know who she was. And there could be any number of reasons for that. We don't know enough to say whether this is a custom or not. We don't know anymore. People used to think they knew, and then scholars look it up and said, well, you know what, there's no evidence for this. We don't know this. So maybe, maybe not. Jim, is there a better translation of verse 15? Because it seems to be a signing of... Yes, I said he took her for a harlot and she had covered her face is apparently better. Not as an indication that there's any connection between the two. Just two different things. Like I say, it might be that at this time, in this particular subculture of the Canaanites, this was going on. But it's hard to say on the basis of ancient Near Eastern materials. And the Hebrew doesn't require us to take it that way. Well, he says he's going to send her a kid. A kid is parallel to a child. We've looked at this before. 
And even in English, the word kid means both human child and baby goat. And it doesn't mean both things in Hebrew, but a baby goat is a symbol of a human child throughout the Scripture. And that becomes ironical. He says, if you let me sleep with you, I'll give you a kid. Well, sure enough, he sleeps with her, and she gets not one kid, but two kids. And that's not just a pun in English, it's a pun in Hebrew. He promises her a goat kid, and she gets what a goat kid symbolizes. She gets a human kid. And then she asks for a pledge. She knows what she's doing. She's real smart. She's the new Rebecca. And just as Rebecca wanted to be in the covenant, so Tamar wants to be in the covenant. And she has not gone off and married somebody else. She wants to be in the covenant people of God. And she asks for this pledge. Now, what is the pledge? The way it reads in your Bible is your seal, your cord, and your staff that is in your hand. The question is, what's this talking about? Is it talking about three different things? A seal, which could be on a ring or a cylinder seal, and then some type of cord, and then a big staff that's in his hand? If you take it that way, the question is, what is the cord? But if you take it a different way, a better way, then it all makes sense. What she asked for is a cylinder seal. A cylinder seal is like a rolling pin. It's about as long as two digits on your finger or maybe your full finger, but usually about two. Maybe about an inch, inch and a half long, and it has a hole through it. And you take a pin, and you put your glob of wax down, and you roll the seal out on the wax. And you keep the seal with a string going through it and the pin attached to it, and you can keep it around your neck or you can keep it on your wrist. And if we read it this way, it makes perfect sense. Your cylinder seal and your bracelet and the pin that is on your hand. The thought seemingly that he has a leather strap around his hand, the cylinder and the pin are attached to that strap, and it's on his hand. So he's not giving her a big stick, which is problematic anyway. How's she going to get away with that and all the rest? He's giving her a small item that she can conceal and take with her. So that's the pledge, and of course what it represents is him. Seals will come up again in the story. Again, all these parallels, sometimes parallels of full events, sometimes just parallels of specific items. But Pharaoh is going to give his seal to Joseph. And it will be explained what that means when he does, in case we just don't know. Verse 42 of 41, Pharaoh removed his signet ring from his hand and placed it on Joseph's hand. And that's immediately after verse 40. To your order shall all my people submit. Only by the throne will I be greater than you. You will be the one over my house. So having the signet ring means he has Pharaoh's authority. And now Tamar has gotten this unique symbol of authority from Judah. It means that if she wants to, she can go to the bank of Adula and check out all the money from Judah's savings and checking accounts because she's got his seal. Well, Judah gave me the seal and roll it out. There it is. Oh, yeah, that's Judah's seal, all right. And it's got a lion right there on it. See, you roll it out on a piece of wax, and what shows up is a lion, the Judah sign, maybe. So that's the power that he gives into her hand. This is really foolish. 
For a one-night stand, he gives away all that he is in an official way. This is the sons of God giving everything to the daughters of men. And what's going to happen is a flood. Two sons have already been killed. Everybody's going to be killed. The covenant's going to be destroyed if something doesn't change here. Of course, something is going to change. But using modern English, the enormity of his act is seen in what he gives. I guess enormity would be okay. The enormousness, the largeness, as well as the evil of what he does. Then in verse 19 it says, She rose and went away, and she put off her veil and clothed herself in her widow's garment. So, this goes back home. But she has become pregnant. And I don't guess she knew that, but we find it out, and she finds it out soon enough. Then we have a whole paragraph about how she disappears, which I'm not quite sure why it's here. It's hard to know why so much attention is given to this. It does chiastically match the story of her showing up, and now she's disappeared. But I think there's probably more here than I've seen. But it's in verses 20 to 23. Now when Yehuda sent the goat kid by the hand of his friend the Adulamite to fetch the pledge from the woman's hand, he could not find her. And he asked the people of her place, the place where she was, saying, Where is the holy prostitute, the one in two wells in Nahum, by the road? And they said, There's been no sacred prostitute here. And so he returned to Yehuda and said, I could not find her. Moreover, the people of the place said, There has been no sacred prostitute here. And Yehuda said, Let her keep them for herself, lest we become a laughing stock. Behold, I sent her this kid, but you, you could not find her. Odd stuff here. Judah apparently knows he'd be embarrassed that he gave away so incredibly valuable and precious an item to a prostitute. So if he tries to find out who she is and puts out a wanted poster and runs ads on TV, everybody's going to know about it. There's no embarrassment, I suppose, in using a prostitute in this culture, but it's definitely embarrassing to say this guy was so moonstruck over this woman that he couldn't even see that he gave her his entire life, the symbols of his estate. She gave her total power over all of his property by giving away his signet. That's incredibly stupid. And so now he knows he's done something that was not only sinful, but really stupid. And he says, well, I've done what I could, and let's not do any more about it. Now, I've given you notes on this sacred prostitute business here. Heretofore, she's just been called a harlot. Now she's called a sacred harlot. And this is the traditional translation of the word Kadesha, which comes from the word Kodesh, meaning holy. Might as well stick those up there so you can see that they're the same word. In Hebrew, they look like Kodesh and Kadeshah. I'm not absolutely sure about that, but I think that's right. It may be this sign here. At any rate, it's Q-D-S-H and Q-D-S-H. And it means a woman who is holy. We could say, where is the holy woman? And the interpretation would be that Judah not only thought of her as a harlot, but as a sacred prostitute, so his sin was not only moral, but also religious compromise. Not only was he venting his lust, but he was also doing so with a woman who is a priestess of pagan religion. 
And so he's involved not only in ordinary sin, but in religious compromise, joining in idolatrous activity with the daughters of men. The problem is that there's apparently zero evidence that sacred prostitution was practiced in any of these religions in the ancient world. We always hear about this, that there were temple prostitutes and men would sleep with them and blah, 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 blah. But articles have come out in recent years saying, you know what, there's no evidence of this. Nobody ever talks about it. We don't have any indication that such went on. There were virgins associated with temples, as in Rome, vestal virgins. And their virginity was a symbol of the inviolability of the city. But in terms of sacred prostitutes, especially in Canaanite culture, now that's been raised as a question. Did it exist or not? It was something that was assumed to exist, partly because of this passage. But now it's open to question. Now, I have no idea. I can't resolve this. And I noticed that the scholarly literature that I have access to, which is minimal, refers to this issue. It doesn't seem to have persuaded all the scholars, so maybe the evidence is being misinterpreted and it's still to be resolved. The Bible does use this word kadosh for male prostitutes later on in the Bible, or seems to. So the question is a little bit up in the air. But I would say that this much is true. The text seems to want us to understand that Judas' compromise was not only ethical but religious. The author of this passage, whoever wrote it, Joseph, Moses, whoever, could have continued to use the word harlot throughout this passage. She dressed like a harlot to start with, and later on in the next verses it says Tamar has played the harlot. She's played the harlot in her father's house or whatever. Well, why not just continue to use the same word through here? One answer is that it's only Hira, not Judah, who uses this word sacred prostitute, and that he's just using the more common word in this culture for a prostitute. But without any indication, I don't think that's very good. Why would he use a different word? I think we're supposed to understand somehow or other Judah's sin was not only ethical but religious. Whatever the word kadosh, holy woman, means, whatever the cultural practice was, the use of that expression holy woman here for a harlot indicates we are supposed to understand theologically that his sin was religious as well as moral. He's involved in the wrong kind of holiness and religion. So that's as much as I can say about that issue, whether there was a practice of holy prostitution or not. The text is using a similar word. And so we have to understand that what's happening in the passage, what this passage is trying to communicate to us, is the sons of Jacob are not just committing moral atrocities, but religious atrocities. And we already saw that in chapter 34, where they not only massacred the men of Shechem, but they used circumcision as a way to do it. They lied to them. They told them they were taking them into covenant with God. Once they were actually in covenant with God, and once those men really were their brothers by covenant, then they murder them. So their sin is not just murder. It's religious, blasphemous action as well. The same thing is happening here. This isn't just shacking up with a prostitute, which would be a sin, but it's also religious in character and incredibly stupid he's going to give everything away what are we supposed to learn from this well apparently if they continue to live in the land of Canaan this is what's going to happen to them unless they change their hearts 
They're going to wind up intermarrying with the Canaanites. They will give all their property away to the Canaanites. And they will become involved in idolatrous religion. So that complex of things is part of what is setting us up for isolating them in the land of Goshen. Move to the land of Goshen. You won't be intermarrying with the Egyptians. Not very much. You stay with the Canaanites, you may intermarry with them, you may get involved in their religion, and you will give all your property to them. So I've got to get you away from the Canaanites. God is saying, we'll move you down to the land of Goshen, isolate you, and protect you because you're not mature enough to handle these challenges that are coming in front of you. I've got to put some external things in place to protect you from yourselves. And they're not likely to do much intermarrying with the Egyptians. Why? Anybody remember? Egyptians regard shepherding as an abomination. So they're not going to have a whole lot of close cultural contact with the Egyptians. Some will intermarry. Joseph, of course, marries a converted Egyptian babe. But that's not going to be real common. So I think that's also part of it. Well, now we come down to the end of it. It appeared it already moved down in Egypt and were moving back up here grazing their yeah. rocks and things. But... This wouldn't apply to Judah here because obviously he's not living down in Goshen, right? Well, we don't know where he's actually living. We know that he is gone up to shear sheep with Hira. I mean, just because the headquarters of the nation was down in Goshen doesn't mean they didn't have large tents. They did have large tents. You want to know what a tent looks like, you look at the tabernacle. They had these large tents and they could live somewhere else for many months. So, And we know from the book of Chronicles that while they were living in Goshen, they engaged in wars and conquests up in the Promised Land. So there was initially plenty of action in the land of Canaan even after they had officially moved the entire clan to Goshen. So that's a rather loose federation, if you want to call it, while they're down in Goshen. I mean, they aren't really... Well, when they lived at Hebron, we saw in the last chapter, they were pasturing 75 miles to the north. They were living in Hebron, and it says they were pasturing in Dothan, which is about 75 miles away. So living in Goshen and pasturing 100 miles to the north up in the land of Canaan wouldn't seem to be all that different from what they'd done right along. You really have to condense this temporally in order to get it into the period before Goshen. You have to have all these people marrying at about the age of 13. And I don't think it works. That's the only way you can cram all of these events in 20 years. Uh-huh. This has nothing to do with anything, but I think you may have underestimated Tamar and he said that she didn't know she was pregnant. I think that women were very aware of when they were pregnant when they could conceive. And I think she had so much at stake. Uh, she didn't want to... Um, I think she got what she was wanting. Oh, I'm sure she intended to, to get pregnant. Just like all the other patriarchal wives. They exactly Oh, I'm sure she was. I just would think it would be 30 days before you would know for sure. Okay. Wouldn't it? <laughs> or something like that. At any rate, whether she knew immediately or not, she would know pretty soon. Yeah, and certainly she intended to become pregnant. That was the whole point was to have children and to get into the priestly nation. Yeah. So it would have been the right time of the month, you're saying. Certainly that's true. She calculates this. 
or God helps her. I mean, it happens that Judah is on this trip at exactly the right time of the month, so it all works out. Okay. Do you think that they stay closer to Goshen afterwards? Is that what you're trying to say? Or? Well, there would be headquarters somewhere. Isolating? Oh, you mean after this event? Well, I don't know. I suppose they did. It's hard to say. I mean, we just don't know. In Chronicles, we've got these wars that took place apparently during this time where certain of these sons go up and fight. I'm not going to try to find it now. In the land of Canaan while they're in Goshen before they were reduced to slavery. So, but I think part of the theme here is they're becoming involved with Canaanites and God's going to isolate them. Possibly, if you want to try to read behind the scenes, you could say that because they didn't stay in Goshen and didn't isolate themselves, God eventually reduced them to slavery, which forced them to stay down there. <laughs> Let's finish this up. Verse 24. We come to Tamar is almost being killed, matching the situation where her husbands were killed. Verses 24-26, It came about after almost three new moons that Yehuda was told, saying, Tamar, your daughter-in-law, has played the whore. In fact, she has become pregnant from whoring. And Yehuda said, Bring her out and let her be burned. And as she was being brought out, she sent a message to her father-in-law, saying, By the man to whom these belong, I am pregnant. And she said, when she got there, Pray recognize whose seal and cords and staff or pen are these. And Yehuda recognized them and said, She is in the right more than I, for after all I did not give her to Shalah my son, and he did not know her again. Now we got a couple of problems here. The first is that Tamar has been dwelling in her father's house, so how does Judah have any authority over her? My first question would be, who told him? And if it was their own father, maybe in that process he was transferring authority. Yeah, well, we could say perhaps the father told. We've got a number of situations in this story where people are being told by unknown parties. Tamar is told that Judah has gone to Timnah, and now someone tells. I think it may hit back a little bit to Joseph running into the man who tells him where the brothers are. God is seeing to it that important information is being passed along by somebody. So, one possibility is that Tamar's father tells Judah and passes the authority to him. Another possibility is his, he's died in the interim because we don't know how long this has been and that she's now part of Judah's household. Don't know, but it seems as if at least Judah assumes that he's got the right to make decisions regarding her when in fact he had sent her back to her father's house and he would have been the one having the authority. So that's one question we might want to ask when we get to heaven and say exactly what was going on here, guys. And then there's the fact that he says, let her be burned. The law requires burning for the daughter of a priest who plays the harlot. We understand this to mean that the person is put to death and then their body is burned. Not that they're burned to death. There's no indication of people being burned alive in the Bible, and that's not what it would mean. But whatever the case is, this is not in accordance with the law that God gives later on. In the first place, in cases of adultery, both parties are subject to death. So, if she's gotten pregnant, then where's the man? There's always a question. Where's the man with the woman taking the adulteries? Where's the man? Let's put the woman to death. Let's let the guy go. So, in the first place, he's not following that out. And 
by saying, let her be burned, he's going beyond what God is going to give him the law later on. Now, the law hasn't been given yet. On the other hand, we know that God told Abraham his statutes and his judgments and his ordinances, and that these people seem to be living in terms of many of the things that show up in the law later on. So, this outburst on Judah's part, I think, is recorded for us to give one more indication that Jacob's sons are out of control. If you don't have law that is on the books and universal and being followed, then justice becomes arbitrary and it becomes ad hoc. And say, well, it doesn't matter what the Florida law says about elections. We just make our own decisions here on the fly to make it come out the way we want. And this, of course, is increasingly going on in our society, although it always goes on to some extent. And here Judah is angry and embarrassed and humiliated, and so he's ready to be arbitrary and go too far. Uh huh. Could it possibly be pointed out to the fact that Pointing back to Hira using the term holy prostitute. Well, it could possibly be in terms of the daughter of a priest, except that Judah doesn't know that she's the same person as the holy prostitute. But like you say, it may be that the writer of the passage wants us to see again that there is a connection with holiness. These are the holy covenant people, and so they're under stricter rules than ordinary people. But in my mind, at least, the main thing is Judah is unjust, and now he's going to be brought down. Now she does the Rebecca thing. She brings her sinful father-in-law to repentance by revealing what is going on. So what Rebecca did is what Joseph is going to do later on. And Tamar is right in the line with Rebecca and Joseph in setting up a situation where there's a deception and then there's a revelation and the person that is in sin is brought to repentance through it. She sends a message to her father-in-law and sends this stuff along. And then she arrives and asks the question. Now, that's exactly what the brothers did with Joseph. I mean, I don't think we're supposed to miss that there is an ironical eye-for-eye type of allusion back to the preceding story. Jacob's son sent Joseph's torn and bloody tunic back. And then when they get there, several months later or whenever it is, when they get back to camp, they go to Jacob and they say, Examine, please. Are these the things of your son? We found it. Exactly the same language is here and the same kind of event. Examine, please. It's got this pray, recognize. Whose are these? So I don't think that's an accident. I think she sends the stuff on ahead and then shows up that the writer wants us to understand that what Judah did to his father is now being done to him. And in verse 26, Judah confesses his own sin. He says, she is more righteous than I. Well, I mean, she's gotten pregnant out of wedlock, and he threatened to have her burned to death, and now he's saying, I'm worse than that. So we have to see this as some type of repentance. He publicly tells people that he's not going to press any charge against her because it's his fault, and it also says he doesn't know her again. I've got down here, this is the first turning point recorded in his life, although it probably happened later than his taking responsibility with Jacob and before Joseph. In other words, in the narrative that's told later on, we have him saying, leave Benjamin in my care and I'll offer myself for him if need be, and then he does that. If my chronology is right, that's already happened. But this is told first for reasons that we looked at last week.
Or possibly all these people were getting married when they were 12 or 13 years old, and we can cram all this into the 20 years before they went down to Egypt, but I don't think that's very likely because of the periods of time involved. The other question is, why didn't he marry her? Other Middle Eastern codes allow father-in-law to have a leveret marriage with a widowed daughter-in-law, but the Bible doesn't explicitly forbid it, but it does say when brothers dwell together, the brothers do it, and it doesn't name anyone else who might engage in the leveret situation. So again, I think we have to understand that they are already familiar with the leveret law because he's doing it, but would seem to be familiar with God's version of it, which is brothers only, and after he repents, he is more careful to keep what is later on going to be revealed in the law. Again, I don't know, but it doesn't say he did. Uh-huh. I know this is well before the story of Ruth, but his Redeemer stuff seems to be known at this time. Yeah. The impression I have is that you have some sort of a priority list, or like the succession to the throne or something, and it's possible for one on the list to say, no, I won't do it, and then it goes to the next guy. Yeah. That sort of thing. you think that came into play in this particular situation at all? Notice that there would be recognized the priority, and, and then it doesn't look like anybody picks her up. As a, no, it doesn't. It's The Ruth situation is hard to understand. The law says people have to be dwelling together in the same place. And there is a pecking order. And so the nearer kinsman, who would also be the lever in Ruth, says, I don't want to do it. And so they do the sandal thing, which is a milder form of something the law requires, that the woman pull his shoe off and spit in his face. But it doesn't have to because he's not actually rejecting. He's saying, if you want to do it, I'm glad to pass it on to you. So they just do a ceremonial version of it. But it looks as if not just literal brothers, but somewhat more extended kin can be involved in lever thing as well as in the kinsman-redeemer thing, that they are parallel. The same person is both. So however far kinsman-redeemer-avenger goes, that's how far lever goes. I mean, it would be interesting to know if Sheila was already married. That's why he wouldn't now be given Tamar. It'd be interesting to know if maybe one of Judah's nephews, maybe one of the other sons of Simeon or somebody, picked her up. One nearer kinsman married her later on. We just aren't told. I guess it's possible. It also seems that the offspring go to Judah and not to the first son. I mean, that, that seems like that sort of dropped by the wayside. Well, I've got a thought on that coming up. Yeah, but they aren't considered the sons of Ur and Onan. They're considered sons of Judah as if they were replacements for Ur and Onan. Because there's two of them. And so, yeah, in the genealogies and chronicles and other places, it doesn't say Ur and Onan are not in the list. It's just Judah is the father of Perez and Zerah. Because in a sense he is. It's not the usual leveret thing because he's father and not brother. Well, I'd like to finish this up. The birth of these sons... 27 to 30. It came about at the time of her birthing that, behold, twins were in her body. And it came to pass as she was giving birth that one of them put out a hand, and midwife took and tied a scarlet thread on his hand, saying, This one came out first. But it came to pass as he pulled back his hand, behold, his brother came out. So she said, What a breach you have breached for yourself. So they called his name Peretz, which means breach. 
Afterwards, his brother came out on whose hand was a scarlet thread, and they called his name Zerah, which means the brightness of the sunrise, or something similar. Well, Tamar has already shown that she's another Rebecca. What she did was very Rebecca-esque, setting this thing up, bringing her father-in-law, not husband, to repentance, concealing and revealing. She's also shown that she wants to be in the covenant real bad. And now the fact that she has twins, and the twins are struggling in her womb, is another allusion back to Rebecca, which makes Judah kind of like Isaac, Judah in his sin, in his blindness. Even the fact that he's involved with a woman whose face is concealed hints back to blindness. He doesn't even see what is going on. He does extremely foolish things. Isaac intended to give the covenant entirely to Esau. Judah gives all of his property over to this woman that he cannot even see. Isaac, in his blindness, wants going to give it all to Esau. Judah, who cannot see this woman, gives it all to her. There are a lot of parallels with Isaac in his sin, and then Rebekah and Tamar, and then Isaac repenting and starting to do what's right. Judah repenting and starting to do what's right because he had a wise woman. Again, as we said with Rebekah, don't try this at home. This is not advice for how young women should behave. It's a story about the covenant. We have had two righteous, deceptive Gentile wives, Rebekah and Tamar, and now we're going to have a third, the wife of Potiphar, and she's deceptive and she lies, but she's wicked. So the Bible is going to give us a full picture of this, positive and negative. And I've got down here the two sons, Peretz and Zerah, seem to be, well, they're replacing Ur and Onan, whom God had killed. And later on, Judah's sons are said to be Shelah, Perez, and Zerah. And the other two are not mentioned. Then, verses 28 to 30, it looks as if the midwife names the children. It's got down here, they called his name Perez, but it says she called his name in Hebrew. The immediate she is the midwife. It looks like she's taking Judah's position, as commentators say. Well, Judah has bowed out, and now the midwife has taken her position. Of course, it's possible that the mother named him. And, of course, you can assign a name if you want, but the name has to be confirmed by the father and the mother and everybody else. So, whoever initially did it, if the midwife said these things, fine. They take the names and agree to them. The repetition of the word hand, signifying power, provides a segue into the next story where hand is very prominent. I think hand occurs four times here. They put out a hand. She tied a scarlet thread on his hand. As he pulled back his hand, his brother came out. Afterwards, his brother came out on whose hand was a scarlet thread. Then we get to chapter 39. The word hand occurs over and over and over again in that story. So this is moving us. In terms of what we would hear if we were reading it out loud and just going through the whole passage, you begin to hear this theme of power coming up. And which son has more power? They're wrestling, so to speak, and one has more power than the other. Once again, the firstborn is displaced by the secondborn. This time, Zero is displaced by Perez before he's even born. I've got down here for you that David comes from Perez, the younger one. Zero stuck his hand out first, so he would be firstborn, so to speak. But Perez came out next, so he's secondborn. But he becomes firstborn because he actually comes out first. David, of course, is the youngest. This whole theme of the younger brother replacing the older one is all over Genesis and the Bible. Let's see. Perez means breach. Zera means something like brightness or sunrise brilliance. And then I've got down the other parallel to Joseph that we've mentioned, that Joseph's sons will be switched 
at will. But these are switched at birth. She's rewarded having children in the Bible, in the covenant for those who want to give birth to covenant seed, is a reward. Tamar is not condemned for her action. If we want to make an ethical evaluation of this, we have to take into consideration the options and her intentions. I don't know that she is said to be completely righteous in it. Judah just says she is more right than I was. And that takes care of it. That covers it. I don't think we're supposed to draw any type of situation ethics out of this. Just say, this is what she did. And God blessed it because regardless of how ignorant her knowledge of the right way to act may have been, she intended the right thing. Thank you again for enjoying this episode of the Theopolis Podcast. For more information and for more content from Theopolis, you can check us out online at theopolisinstitute.com. We release new articles every Tuesday and Thursday on our blog, so you'll want to make sure to look out for those. You can also find us on Twitter at underscore Theopolis and on Facebook if you just search for our name. If you've been helped, sharpened, and encouraged by this podcast, we'd really love it if you would go to iTunes and leave us a review. It just takes a few seconds, and it really will help us along in getting our content in front of new listeners. That's all for now, friends. We really look forward to being with you all again in the next episode. And as always, thank you so much for listening.